We're in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I don't have a confession to start out with. I might, I might get there through this sermon at some point. Um, I'm so glad you did that in first service because it's live stream. So Trace, you will always have that <laughs> on, the, on the internet to go back to. And so will we all. Um, well, great to see you all this morning. Uh, most of you know we're in this series, this fall series on being embodied. And we're learning that our bodies, far from being a mistake or something like that, we're part of God's good creation and that we are very integrated beings, right? We are embodied souls. And last week we looked at the fact that our discipleship to Jesus is a very uh, integrated process. It's not just a, an inner spiritual journey, but it involves our bodies. And uh, it's funny, I, I just want to share... I don't know if this is a confession or not, but I had a funny experience this week. I, can, I accused a lot of you of being angry drivers last week. You remember that? And you guys have this habituated response to the body. So I had, this, I had this really subtle but poignant moment. So I forgot something at church uh, the other day. I live like five minutes away. So I had to drive back. So I had five minutes here and five minutes back. And usually on a short drive, I don't put anything on. I just drive in silence. The radio's not on. If I have a longer drive, I'll do a podcast or something like that. But, so I'm driving here in silence. And whatever is going on in my mind is going on my, on my mind. And all of a sudden I realize, wait, the radio's on. And I'm like, I don't know, I didn't think, Dave, I want to turn on the radio. All of a sudden, my, my finger reached out and turned on the radio. And the radio had been on for 20 seconds. I thought, how did the radio get on? And I realized, oh, my, my finger reached out and turned on the radio. And I traced back, I'm like, oh, I was thinking about something. And I had an anxious thought. And then I started to think about something that was creating anxiety, and my finger just reached out and turned on the radio. I'm like, that was interesting. Two minutes later, I'm driving home in silence, and all of a sudden I realize the radio's been on for 20 seconds. I have no idea how the radio got on. Same thing. I retraced my thoughts. Oh, another anxious thought came, and my body responded to anxiety by turning on the radio and looking for some kind of distraction. It was like such a subtle but profound realization of how my mind and body is working in ways that I, 
I didn't ever make a decision. There was, I never made a decision to turn on the radio. My body decided to turn on because something was going on in my mind that triggered anxiety. And so this is what we're learning, that we are very embodied beings. We're very integrated in the way our spirits and our minds and our bodies all work is kind of the way God designed it, that it was all supposed to be this very integrated process. So today, as you may have guessed by this passage, um, we're going to look at one aspect of the fact that we are embodied, and it is our sexuality. We're going to look at not only are we embodied, but we are sexed beings, and we're going to talk about uh, sexual immorality, sexual purity, sexual faithfulness. So we're going to talk about the topic of sex in church. And I want to acknowledge right up front that this is obviously a very sensitive topic that uh, triggers all sorts of emotions and memories and for some anxiety or shame or guilt or resentment, um, all sorts of things like that. I was thinking of some people I know who, for whom sex is their favorite topic outside of church and their least favorite topic inside of church, right? Uh, and that's, that's a reality. And so, um, but we're going we're gonna to talk about it. Paul talks about it. Scripture regularly talks about it. And so we're going to jump in today. And I hope that this is helpful for you, whatever your own journey uh, of being a sexual being has been. Uh, and, and, you know, later on in the series, we're going to talk about LGBTQ issues and all the stuff that's happening culturally. But today is... Uh, just about every human being and the fact that we are sexed beings and how do we pursue Jesus, uh, how do we be disciples of Jesus as sexed beings. So um, before we get into the passage, I just, I, I don't know if this needs to be said, but increasingly I think certain basic things need to be covered in our culture. And, and I don't think I would have needed to do this 20 years ago, but I'll just start here by saying, just to remind people that biblically uh, sex is a good gift from God, okay? It is not dirty and it's not wrong. It is not a result of the fall. It is part of his created beauty that he designed for procreation and for enjoyment and love and intimacy in the context of a marriage. The Bible doesn't poo-poo sex. The Bible celebrates sex. There's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to sexual desire and fulfillment in marriage. It's called the Song of Songs. And I'd encourage you to read it this week. And if you do, bring a glass of cold water with you because it's very racy. Um, <laughs> It really is. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh. But it's, it's a celebration of God's gift of sex. So sex is a good thing, right? It's a good part of God's good creation. And sex is also a sacred thing, biblically, meaning it's not casual. It's not recreational. That in, in two people coming together in the sexual act, it's not just bodies coming together, but it's persons coming together, which shouldn't surprise us if we've been paying attention because we're very integrated beings and God, there's something spiritual that happens when two people come together like that. So it's, it's not casual, it's very, actually very sacred. And because of that, because of its goodness and sacredness, the Bible says there is one context and one context only where sexual behavior makes sense. And it's the context of a man and a woman and a lifelong covenant relationship. Okay? That that kind of intimacy, that kind of coming together of persons only works in a space of total safety, total trust, and total commitment. And if you take that act or that behavior outside of that really wonderful, beautiful context, the Bible calls that sexual immorality. Okay? Taking this good thing out of God's good context where it belongs. And you'll see in verse 13, I think here, um, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. That's what he means, sexual behavior outside of that context. The Greek word there is literally porneia, 
which you would know we get our word porn and pornography, pornography from. So anything outside of that marriage, so adultery, um, premarital sex, extramarital sex, uh, certainly pornography uh, would fit in that, voyeurism, any kind of sexual behavior outside of, outside of marriage. And if those categories don't trigger any you know, um, conviction, well, Jesus is like, well, yeah, and even if you look at someone lustfully, you've um, committed sin in your heart. <laughs> so that, that is what the Bible describes as porneia, sexual immorality. And um, that is simply taking this beautiful thing outside of this beautiful context in which God designed it, all right? So I think that's important to say in today's culture, so I said it. Um, So let's look at this passage. Um, Little context, this is obviously written to the Corinthians. Uh, Corinth was a very sexualized culture, if you didn't pick up on it from this passage. Uh, A lot of parties, a lot of drinking, a lot of gluttony, a lot of sexual freedom, Uh, prostitution was was common practice there, and uh, just a lot of sexual freedom. A lot of us think the sexual revolution started in the 60s, uh, and the sexual revolution was alive and well in the Roman Empire, okay? So nothing new under the sun. But very sexualized culture, and unfortunately, the, the spirit of Corinth had infiltrated the church at the time. And this was a church that really liked to embrace their freedom in Christ. <laughs> like, right, in Christ we're free, and they used that freedom as an excuse to do things that they shouldn't have been doing. Um, so in like the chapter four, this chapter five, you have a guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And the church is like going, look at how progressive and how relevant we are, that we, we permit this kind of thing. Aren't we cool? And Paul's like, no, you're not cool. That's not cool. Um, in chapter 10, <laughs> it's interesting, we're going to have communion today, they are, there are people who are getting drunk during their communion feasts. Okay, and back then, you don't get a little cup, right? You've got like, you're drinking wine during this feast, and people are actually getting hammered during communion in the name of freedom. And Paul's like, no, this isn't cool. You're misusing your freedom in Christ. And so Paul is, all that to say, Paul is speaking into a culture where freedom is in the air, and it's a, uh, it's a highly sexualized context. Uh, and I was thinking this week, I'm like, that's precisely the culture that I'm speaking into today, right? In, in, in 21st century Western American life, where it's such a highly sexualized culture that we're living in. It's a, it's a culture that there are messages, countless messages a day, especially training and conditioning men to view women as objects of sexual desire. It's happening both ways now, but still mainly that conditioning women to think of themselves as objects of desire for men. Everywhere we look, everything we watch on TV is telling us sex is not sacred. It's actually quite casual and recreational. It's just bodies coming together. and I can, My body can come together with whoever I want. Right? I can hook up with whoever I want. That's not a big deal. It's just our bodies doing that. It's not me. I'm not my body. Um, and we're freedom. Sexual freedom is in the air. And unfortunately, as is with Corinth, I think... The spirit of the age, as it usually does, has infiltrated the church of the age. And um, now we have so many in the church where uh, premarital sex, for instance, is just the norm. It's just sort of the assumption even among Christians. Uh, Where our viewing habits of what we watch aren't that different from people who aren't Christians. Where pornography is rampant in the church. And all of this often in, in the name of freedom, right? Because who wants to be a legalist, right? Who wants to be accused of being a Pharisee? That's like, the, that's like the anathema in today's world. And so in the name of freedom, it's so easy to adopt the spirit of the age. 
All right, not a, like an encouraging start, you know, um, but this is the reality. This is, these are the waters that we are swimming in. And so I want you to look at verse 12. Paul, you should have some things that are in quotes. What Paul is doing at the beginning of this passage is he's, I'm staying in the, I just want to give you the culture of, of, of Corinth. Uh, he's quoting uh, po- popular slogans that the Corinthian church would say. This is things that, they, that was in the air that they'd say. And he's quoting them and saying, but let me respond to that quote. So the first one, it says, um, everything is permissible. Or mine says, I have the right to do anything. This was a slogan. Everything's permissible, freedom in Christ. Paul says, yeah, yeah but not everything's beneficial, <laughs> right? Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. That's not that helpful. Uh, next one, again, verse 12, everything's permissible, or I have the right to anything, to do anything. Then Paul says this, but I will not be mastered by anything. And I thought that is such a powerful, like, yeah, you might have freedom, but careful that in your freedom, you don't pursue things that end up making you enslaved to the very thing that you thought was going to bring you freedom. And, and we see so much of that today. We're in this world of sexual freedom, right? People are actually in sexual bondage. And I was just, you know, thinking about my own life this week and thinking about growing up, grew up here in Orange County, uh, and then you hit puberty, you know, a young guy with all the normal hormones and a very sexualized culture. And just that journey of like teens and early 20s of honestly lust, in, in a very sexualized culture and, and that um, so many men, I think, and many women too can relate to in the, the journey of guilt and hiding and, and then forgiveness and not liking what's going on in here and just that whole journey that um, was anything but free, actually. And I was thinking this week, and that was before the internet. You know, I can't, if, what if someone had put a smartphone in my hands at 16? Like, I wouldn't have stood a chance, not a chance. And this is the world that our kids are growing up in, where in the name of freedom, we now have so many people who are actually in bondage to something that, um, that they couldn't stop even if they wanted to. And Paul is saying, hey, yeah, everything's permissible, but we don't want to be mastered by anything. And then one more, he says, uh, verse 13, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. They're saying, yeah, you know, uh, um, it's sort of like, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we'll die, right? The food, you know, food and the stomach belong together. They're both going to die. They're both going to be destroyed. So so who really cares what you do with them? I can kind of do with my body what I want. It's going to be destroyed anyways, right? They had actually a very low view of their body. Paul reminds them in verse 14, no, no, no. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. You know, God's, Paul's saying, no, your body matters to God, not just in this life, but for all eternity. He's going to raise you up. You're going to get a resurrection body. What you do with your body matters to God. Okay, so are you with me? Okay, so I want to get to the heart of this passage. That's, that was sort of a lot of opening kind of context and, and things. But the very heart of this passage uh, is so beautiful to me. And here's what Paul, he's speaking to this very uh, permissive culture of Corinth. And he says, I want to help you guys do two things. I want to help you rethink, uh, kind of change your thinking about your bodies. And then I want you to change your acting in your bodies. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at. So he starts um, by 
helping them rethink their bodies, which will show up. Jaden or Golden, can you guys help me get some control over here? Because I've lost it. There it is. Thank you. And why can't this, why won't this work? All right, this controller. So, Jaden, next slide. Right there. Okay. So, here's, so uh, I noticed this week as I was reading this, there's three times in this passage where Paul says, do you not know? <laughs> three times. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And I think he's saying, you guys are acting like you don't know some things that you ought to know. And so let me inform you of some things that you ought to know about your bodies. And he gives them four, in this passage, four realities about their bodies that inform how we ought to think in the sexual arena of our bodies. And I just, some of these will be reviewed to you, but I was blown away. There's nothing, these are nothing short of revolutionary if we really took in what Paul says about our bodies in this passage, okay? So, first thing he says Look at the second half of verse 13. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Jay, next slide. Oh, there it is. Yeah. The body, here, let me help you understand your bodies. First thing, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. The Lord there being the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, guess what, guys? Your bodies belong to Jesus. Your bodies belong to him. And I, you know, I grew up thinking, when I became a Christian, I invited Jesus into my heart. My heart belongs to Jesus. I didn't really think about my body belonging to Jesus, but Paul says, yes, your body is for Jesus. And we'll find out at the end just how true that is. And the Lord is for the body. The Lord cares about your body. He's not indifferent to what you do with your body. What you do with your body matters to him. So your body is for Jesus, okay? Okay, second point, verse 15. He really ups it here. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Okay, this is the one that floored me this week. I want you to try to take this in. He's not just saying your body belongs to Jesus. He's saying your bodies are part of Jesus' body, okay? Your bodies are members of Christ. Here's the, the metaphor he's running with. Dave has a body, and Dave's body has members. I call those members fingers and toes, and eyes and ears and mouth and nose, right? Those are the members of my body. Paul is saying, Jesus has a body, and that body has members. And those members are Spencer and Russ, right? And Lynn, you people, us people, are the members of Christ's body. Not only does your body belong to Jesus, your body is actually an extension of Jesus' body. Verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. There is a spiritual connection when we put our faith in Jesus, such that now Jesus views us as so connected with him that he sees us as the body of Christ. <laughs> We are the physical representation of Jesus' body on earth. His body is not here. His body is in heaven, but his body is present through us. Do you think of yourself as part of Jesus' body? I don't normally. Ephesians 5, uh, Paul's talking to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as your own body. And he goes, who, who hates his, his own body? Because you, you feed and care 
for your own body. And then he says, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Why does Jesus care for you? Why does he encourage you sometimes? Why does he protect you? Because you are part of him. He's just caring for himself, is what Paul's saying when he does that. Can you think of a higher view of the human body than that? You are an extension. Your body is an extension of Jesus' body. That's a sacred, amazing thing. Now, of course, that ups the stakes, doesn't it, when it comes to the sexual arena? Look at this. Uh, Look at verse 15. Your bodies are members of Christ Jesus himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? May it never be. Paul's saying, can you imagine Jesus going and hooking up with a prostitute? Can you imagine him doing that? Not really. Well, guess what? That's what happens when you do that because you are a member of his body. And when you look at porn, when you have an affair, when you're sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, that's as if Jesus is doing that because you are members of his body and we don't want to bring Jesus, his body into that act. Your body is too important because it's connected with Jesus. So you need to avoid those things because we don't want to bring Jesus into those moments. It's a high claim. Next one, verse 19. This will be the one that I think most of us are most familiar with in this passage. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, many of us grew up hearing that. I wonder what, when you hear that, I wonder what context you heard that in. Some of us, it's, oftentimes it's in like physical health, right? Like my body's a temple, that's why I eat clean food, um, which is not a bad um, application. But the context clearly is sexual purity uh, here. And I grew up hearing this, my body's a temple. But I was thinking this week what it was like to hear this as first century people who would have had a knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, where God called Israel to build an actual temple in Jerusalem, right? And it was one place on this globe, and it was the most sacred space on the earth, where God said, my presence will dwell there, my Shekinah glory, my Holy Spirit will reside in this physical place, and it was so holy that no one was ever, ever able to enter it, right? Except for the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement with many sacrifices, the most sacred, holy place on earth. And Paul is saying, guess what the new covenant's all about? You have become that. Your bodies are now temples where God's Holy Spirit dwells. And so they are to be these places of righteousness and purity and love Right? And justice and care. Your bodies are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. And then one final word. Look at verse 20. Last reality. You, uh, or sorry, the end of verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Right? You are not your own. <laughs> you were bought at a price. What was the price of our bodies being purchased? Yeah. The price was Jesus' body, actually, on the cross. Jesus gave his body and all of who he was as an offering for sin for us. We have been purchased by his blood. We sang that in that second song. 
You were bought at a price. And I was thinking this week, so our bodies triply <laughs> belong to God. God created our bodies, right? Jesus purchased our bodies, and the Holy Spirit indwells our bodies. So we belong, our bodies belong to God in, in a threefold way. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lay claim to our bodies. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And I just thought, I, that phrase, you are not your own, um, I mean, this is, this is a beautiful picture of, of our bodies, but I thought, I can't think of a more offensive comment in this culture than that one right there. <laughs> right? You are not your own. Are you kidding me? This, the slogan, if, if we could have started this passage, would be, I am my own. I can do with my body what I want. I can, I can be who I want to be. I can do what I want to do. I am my own. That is, that is the, the religion of today. And Paul's like, not if you believe in Jesus. You don't, you're not your own. <laughs> you belong to God. I mean, this, that's how this deal works. It's not like, oh, I believe in the cross so I can go on living however I want. No, no. This is the exchange. God purchases you. You now belong to him. Your body belongs to him. And your body is such an important thing to him. And so that has all sorts of implications for how we live out our sexual lives. And I was thinking this week, I think, you remember those old property of shirts or that property of, you know? I think it'd be great if like the parts of our bodies just were tattooed with property of God, like, and we couldn't change it. And what if we had to walk around just realizing, oh, these hands are the property of God. These, you know, these eyes are the property. This, I am not my own. I don't belong to myself anymore. I am, I am part of Jesus' body. I am, I'm filled with his spirit right? I've been purchased by his blood. Pretty, pretty awesome. Now, one, one quick comment. I was thinking about, notice what a high view of the human body this is. And that's one of my themes, that, that the Bible has a very high view of the body. And I was thinking, some of us who grew up in the church, this wasn't really my experience, but many who grew up in the church, I think we were told to avoid uh, sex with a very low view of the body. Like the, Sex is kind of bad and dirty and wrong, and, and bodies are kind of bad and dirty, and you can't really trust them, and, and that's why sex is bad, just because body stuff is kind of, you just need to avoid body stuff. Yeah, I don't know if that, if that maybe, that, that, I feel like a lot of my friends had that kind of like messaging. And notice Paul's messaging is precisely the opposite. Your body is a holy thing. Your body is part of Jesus himself. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why sexual immorality is bad. Not because the body is bad. It's because the body is so important. And because sex is such a good thing in its right context. Very different perspective. So he's helping us rethink the body. And then, more practically, he also helps us act differently in our body. So next slide. Uh, reacting in the body. He wants to give us new ways of acting in the body. And there's a lot that he says, a lot of information he gives us. There's only two commands in this passage, and I want to point them out to you. Uh, Jade, next one. First one is in verse 18. Two commands. Here's the first one. Flee from sexual immorality. Okay, in light of all that I've said about your bodies, here's the first thing you ought to do. Flee from sexual immorality. What does that mean? Flee. Run away in haste, forthwith, right? <laughs> Don't linger. Don't, 
you know, coddle up to next sexual immorality, say maybe we shouldn't spend as much time together anymore. You know, like don't dabble, don't flirt with it. Run, flee in haste. Like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. Remember that story? Run away. Your body is too sacred. It's too connected with Jesus to dabble in these things. Run away from it. And then the other command is the very end of the, of the passage. Look at the last part of verse 20. Therefore, literally, glorify God with your bodies. So keep those up there. Glorify God. What does that mean? How do I glorify God with my body? Well, use your body in ways that show God how glorious you think he is. Do things with your body that tell God, God, I think you're awesome. <laughs> you're the most important priority in my life. I love you. I trust you. I worship you. Use your bodies in ways that communicate that to God and to others. God, I just think you are, you're a glorious, wonderful part of my life. And I use my body in ways that demonstrate that. Okay, so keep that up there. Um, this is what we're called to do. And let me just try to bring this home. I was thinking this week, <laughs> in this very, you know, permissive sexualized culture, what if these two commands were our litmus test for how we navigate our sexual lives? It's clearly Paul saying, this is your litmus test. And what if this act was our litmus test. Let me just, I thought, I'll bring this to, to something that probably every one of us in this room relates to. What if we brought these two commands to our viewing habits, okay? So movies you watch, um, shows, your streaming, you know, content, all of that. Uh, what if this was our litmus test? But, you know, I think there's an interesting conversation for Christians. Like, what's appropriate? What, what, what should we watch? And I just thought I'd use something that everyone relates to. And um, there's a lot of great shows out there, right? A lot, of, a lot of great shows with a lot of sexual content in them. Um, but everybody's watching them, and you kind of don't want to miss out on that. And um, uh, I remember like 10 years ago, um, I feel like Game of Thrones was like this new thing that came out. And, and a lot of people were talking about it. I've never seen it. Um, but a lot of sexualized content uh, and also very interesting story. So all that to say... Um, what are you watching these days, and what is your litmus test? And I'll just say, my fear is that our litmus test is asking a question that most of us were asking back in high school. And the litmus test is the question, anybody know what the question I'm getting at? How far is too far? Right? If you grew up in youth group, that was the, you're dating somebody, that was the big question. So how far is too far? Right? Can I hold her hand? Um, then I think kissing was next, right? Uh, can I kiss her? Can I French kiss her? Um, can we neck? I never understood what necking was. And then, then, then there were, heavy petting was like the next thing. And I never, I never figured out what heavy, it felt very aggressive. I don't know what heavy petting is. But, and then of course there's sex, right? You had these like, these, these bases. And the question was like, how far is too far? So you're, uh, you're always asking your youth leader, how far is too far? And, and of course the, the motivation behind that is, I want to know the limit that I can get up next to and do and still feel like I can wake up and look myself in the mirror as a Christian and go to church on Sunday, right? Like, how, just tell me how far is too far because I want to I wanna get there as quickly as I can. <laughs> uh, all right. And then hopefully stay there and not cross that. And uh, good luck with that. That's exactly right. And what I'm realizing is context changed. Many of us got married and got older, but, but many of us never actually graduated from that question. Like, we're still asking that question. Like, it's a great show. Everybody's watching it. And I don't know. I mean, um, 
they're kind of clothed and, you know, like, we're still asking the how far is too far question. I think, I, I think we're, we're not asking the right question, right? And what if we just took the, this litmus test? So I just want to picture, you're watching a show and two people are having a sexual encounter. Maybe they're fully naked. Maybe they're partly clothed. Maybe they're all clothed. But there's a sexual encounter on the screen, okay? You're watching this. You just apply this litmus test. Is me watching this an example of fleeing sexual immorality? Or is it an example of lingering and dabbling and flirting with sexual immorality? Is this, watching this, is this an example of me saying to God, God, I'm going to use my eyes in, in ways that show you that you are my number one priority right now? Um, or not? Not is generally the answer I'm going for here. I, I quote this one once a year to you guys. John Piper has this great quote. He says, sex is not a spectator's sport. And that is like, it sounds like a flippant kind of casual comment. That is very profound. God never designed sex to be observed. Think about that. God didn't design the gift of sex thinking people will be watching this. It's a gift to be experienced, not to be observed. And so if we ever find ourselves watching two people have sex, something has actually gone terribly wrong with God's design. And if you hear that, you're like, gosh, Dave, that feels a little legalistic. Like, that feels a little, little hard. I would say, um, I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't. And, and, you know, we're under grace, right? Our, our, our church name is Grace. Um, but what is grace? What is grace designed to do for us? And I was, I was reading this passage. Uh, one, more, one more, Jane. This, this verse on grace. Um, this is Titus 2. And listen how Paul describes grace here. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godless lives in this present age. Next slide. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Go back to that slide just before it for a second. This really hit me. Most of us think of grace and we think, oh, grace is the thing that allows me to say yes to things, right? I got grace. It's the covering. That I can say yes to this because there's grace. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Grace is also a thing that teaches you to say no. Grace is not just a license that you want. Grace is, a, is God's power at work in your life to help you say no to the things that you can't say no to in your own strength. That is also what grace is here for. And so we want to use that grace to glorify God in our bodies. Amen? Okay, so let me close this off. What would it look like for you? We're all in different stages of life, right? Different contexts, different circumstances. But I guess I want to leave you with the question. You've seen this high view of your body that Paul presents. And I just want to leave you with the question. What would it look like for you to answer the call to flee and to glorify? To flee sexual morality and to glorify God in your body. What would it look like today to say, you know what? I may never be perfect on, on this front, and most of us won't be, but I am going to declare war on the sexual immorality in my life. 
I'm gonna take a stand with Jesus and I'm going to declare war on this. I'm going to flee it. I'm gonna to seek to glorify God as much as I can. Not, not asking how far is too far, but how can I truly glorify you? How can I please you with this body you've given me? And I wanna leave you with a thought. Since we're talking about, we're doing a series on the body, that um, sexual sin and sexual purity, there's a lot of um, heart stuff, right? It's, it's about intimacy, it's about forgiveness, it's about shame, right? There, there's deep inner things that really need to be healed to really grow. But since this is a series on the body, <laughs> I wanna encourage you to embodied changes. And so I would encourage you to think, um, not just in terms of stuff going on in here, and, and my take is, if like your solution to your sexual sin is prayer and willpower, um, you are not really seriously interested in changing. Um, yes, prayer can change everything. But if your solution is inner change, like I'm gonna pray more and I'm gonna work harder, you are not actually serious about sexual purity. That that needs to come with very embodied, tangible movements. So, you know, think about your systems. Think about the, the, the actual structures of your life. Is the phone a problem? Is the, is the laptop a problem? Don't ever have the phone or laptop in your bedroom, right? If, if that's the place of temptation. Um, are you dating somebody? Um, <laughs> think about where you are. Don't ever end up in a bedroom alone together with the door closed, asking in that moment the question, how far is too far? Okay, I promise you the answer is you're already too far. Okay, you're already in a situation where you're probably not gonna win that battle, right? Do you need accountability software on your devices? Um, is there a place, a restaurant you go where there's someone who's tempting to you? Don't go there, right? Think in terms of what are the embodied changes I need to make, and I wanna especially encourage you in this. Pursue embodied relationships of support and encouragement and accountability. Okay, this is not something that we can do on our own. And so if I could, if there's only one thing I could say, if this is a struggle for you, I would, if all you hear today is, I wanna encourage you to find trusted people who you are willing to share this journey with. People who you can call in a moment of temptation or people you can call in a moment of failure. And um, it's one thing to confess these things in your heart it's another thing to say it out loud to another human being, to actually embody confession. James says, confess your sins to one another that you will be healed. And it's one thing to imagine God forgiving you for your sexual sin, and it's another thing to have a human being speak it out loud. You are forgiven in Christ. You are a child of God in Christ. Those are embodied um, experiences and relationships. So I really want to encourage you, if this is something that you know, like, I need help, to find trusted people. And I want to end by sharing one person who is willing to be a trusted person for you in this conversation, and it's Bob Sklar. And Jane, I'm going to have you put something up on the screen. Um, you'll laugh at what I'm about to say. Um, Bob is a great guy in our community. Bob is a therapist. Bob is a barber. How cool is that? And I feel like, shouldn't every barber be a therapist? I mean, I think that's kind of how it works. Um, but Bob has had so much experience of walking with men through sexual sin. He leads small groups. It's not his professional work, just his, he, something, his ministry. Uh, he's a great part of our church. And um, he would love to 
get a call from you. And if, it, if it's really embarrassing to like take this, these digits down right now, you might not want to take a photo of this. But this is, uh, I was thinking, I was thinking well, this isn't going to work. It's not like guys are going to like, cheat, like, um, but um, anonymity is important. I believe that. Um, but the sermon notes are always online. If you go to our, our, our homepage, the very top of the homepage, there's a little button that says this week's conversation. You click on that, you get my sermon notes at the bottom of the sermon notes this week. That name and digits are there. I want to encourage you to one guy who would be willing to walk with you in this. So um, this is the invitation. Um, and I, I've gone way too long. I have no idea what time it is. But um, I want to say one last thing. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about all the cultural stuff, LGBTQ issues and all of that. And how do we think about those things, okay? Spoiler alert, I'm going to come down in a pretty um, historic, orthodox, Christian, biblical ethic on these things, okay? It won't surprise you to, many, to, to most of you. But what I want to say today is if we want to have a voice into that conversation in the culture where we are coming at that from compassion, but from truth and with authority, the only church that can have an authoritative voice in that is a church that is pursuing its own sexual purity. Okay? We lose our credibility. We lose our authority when we are not, again, declaring war on our own sexual sin, which almost all of us have. So I wanted to have this conversation first because, before that conversation because that conversation only makes sense in the context of this one. That makes sense? Yes. So we are, we are called to pursue this, to glorify God with our bodies. Let's pray, and then Mark's going to lead us in communion. Lord, uh, we'll be doing this every week. Again, today, we want to just offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. And for, gosh, almost all of us in this room, I imagine, we have varying levels of sexual sin and brokenness and shame. And for some of us, deep, deep shame, not over things we did, but things that were done to us. And so I know this is such a deep, um, personal, heavy issue. And it's something that you care so much about. And so I pray that your spirit would just wash over us today, bring forgiveness where we need forgiveness, bring conviction where we need conviction, uh, and bring connection where we need connection, Lord. So we offer you ourselves. Lord, bring hope where there's hopelessness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.